0: Hey guys, welcome back to Radio Rothbard. This is Stowe Bishop, joined as always by Ryan McMakin. I am recording at our newly uh, redone Condon Hall at the beautiful Mises Institute campus in Auburn, Alabama. Um, If you plan on tuning in to our upcoming Austrian Economics Research Conference, you'll probably see more of this. It's already been shown off in some of the episodes of the Human Action Podcast. And uh, excited to report back that we just had a wonderful event in Tampa with Per Byland, Jeff Dice, Joe Salerno, and a buddy of mine, Brett Lindell. Um, Those videos should be available at Mises.org in our YouTube page. So I highly recommend checking that out. Uh, but, Ryan, I wanted to talk this week about one point that we mentioned in our very popular Marjorie Chandler Green was right episode last week on the topic of national divorce. Um diving into one of your articles um, that you know on a topic we briefly mentioned, but it's that it turns out, in your opinion, if uh, we did have some sort of uh, national divorce, some sort of secessionist movement or political decentralization, maybe these red states will not be economically destroyed. Beyond Repair, as so many very serious people on Twitter seem to be convinced of. Um, you have an article about um, kind of the, 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 the economic consequences of secession and you know, the, the potential of red states losing that federal gravy train. Um, you want to start off by just uh, kind of talking more about that article for our audience, um, the link for which will be in our show notes page.
1: Well, the topic doesn't really necessarily have to be in the context of any sort of secession uh, discussion either. In fact, the first time I really looked at this topic of, okay, who are the net taxpayer states versus the net tax receiver states, it was actually back in 2017 or so. And it was due to uh, just a bunch of references in the media about how uh the the blue states uh are they're just brimming with urban people on welfare, and those states don't produce anything and it's it's the red states that uh, are paying all those bills and I actually wrote the article kind of tempering that view, saying, well, that's not really the case, but now the blue states have taken that to like a whole new level so now they're they've convinced themselves that the red states are are these horribly impoverished backwaters and wouldn't survive ten minutes without a bunch of free money from rich city folk uh, as if there aren't cities in Texas or something. And so it's it's this weird new stereotype that the left has adopted. Uh, that red states don't really produce anything and they're totally dependent on welfare and subsidies and all of this stuff. And and the geniuses in Silicon Valley are the really productive people of America and red staters are a bunch of welfare queens. And uh, so I didn't think that was quite accurate. Either. <laughs> and we we discussed it very briefly in our last episode of this. And I thought, you know what, I'll go back and renew the numbers on that. I'll go run them again and see what's changed. Uh, since 2017 or so. And it seems not much has really changed at all. And so I was stunned then with uh, the proclamations that people on the left were making in response to all of the, like, uh, right, Congresswoman Green's declaration that we need national divorce and all this stuff. And they were saying things like, I pulled out a couple of quotes here. One was from a reporter named Molly Knight, who I actually own a book of hers because she wrote a book about the Dodgers back when I was a Dodger fan. So I I read that. Uh, (laughs) But she talks about red states get their money for roads and cops and schools from blue states. You cut off that gravy train and you got a third world country. So not only would these states uh, lose a little bit of their presumed advantage by being cut off from federal uh, blue state funded welfare, the story goes, they would be reduced to the status of a third world country. That's pretty bold statement. And then uh, another statement was, has it ever occurred to you that if it wasn't for the blue parts of those red states, the latter would be entirely broke? We subsidize y'all's country asses. You're welcome. Uh, Well, this just displays another problem with the claim. The first is, uh, of course, the problem that uh, and the untrue claim that Blue states, which have more cities, are are, uh, overwhelmingly responsible for the wealth uh, produced in America, which is not necessarily the case at all once you start to dig into the numbers. But then also, this is a second issue in this article, uh, is that there are really only two types of people in America. There's the urban people who live in like these blue core cities, and then there's rural people out in the country, And this is just wrong. And I find that both right-wing and left-wing people like to quote this. Uh, I find that right-wing people vastly overestimate the number of rural people in America. They think there's going to be like this rural uprising. Uh, 15% of Americans are rural. uh, And about 20% live in these core urban cities. The, The rest live in the suburbs. So this idea that all the productive people are in the core cities and they're subsidizing poor rural folk... Wrong. The, the suburbs are filled with tons of productive people who, by the way, in those places, the blue-red split comes out about even. So this attempt to claim uh, that uh, that all the productive people, all the people with the good jobs are are uh, these democratic voters and uh, they're subsidizing the countryside, simply not true. Really, the wealth is coming out of the, the suburbs now. It's not even really co- uh, concentrated anymore in uh, the core cities so you've got two things going on here you got one the claim that blue cities are are uh, funding or blue states are funding red states and then you've got this misconception that even within those states that it's only a matter of poor rural people versus uh, silicon valley type urban core people and neither of those things are true but apparently the current narrative right now is that we're going to claim that uh, blue people are all the uh, the the productive rich people of America, and without all their welfare, red people would be quote third world uh, level living. And so, I just wanted to address just how very wrong that is. But you can see, of course, though, just the usefulness of this to the, to uh, the debate. And so, I think that's the sort of thing you just really can't let go unanswered is this idea that hey, blue states are all the smartest, best people, and and you. Uh,
0: you red state people are lucky to have us. And I think some of this you're seeing kind of play out the, the really sinister, um, you know, bias. I mean, that's, that's almost too light of a word. The disgust that I think a lot of modern day progressives have for you know, kind of working class, I mean, white uh in parts of America, right, particularly those in conservative states, you really kind of saw this on display uh, after the Ohio train derailment that we talked about a few weeks ago, where you had progressives basically saying, like, you know, you, Hicks, um, you know, this is the p- byproduct of train deregulation that you guys voted for. You guys deserve it. You know, th- you, you uneducated folk, you know, you, you, you take your, your poisoned, you know, chemical laced water. Um, this is what you deserve. And it's just this very interesting class dynamic that's really I mean, I I think it's permeating and I think it's leading to just some of these very easy sort of Twitter snarky sort of replies to this issue, which is fine whatever, it it is what it is but it's interesting though, it coming up right now, considering how much transformation we've seen Kind of part of it is a result of COVID um, part of it due to growing political segregation of sorts uh, inspired by lockdown states versus free states Um, I think it's playing out on educational divides some of the cultural divides, right, where you know, we're seeing kind of in masses um, business owners that used to be, you know, some of these conservative business owners that are in traditional blue cities that no longer feel safe there or now kind of see that, you know, with given changes in remote work, given certain changes in business structures, right, the ability to flee and leave to states like Florida, like Texas, like Tennessee. Um, interesting. one of the, the, the fastest growing areas is Chattanooga, Tennessee right now. Um, and and so I got some of this is just I think so much of of built in very superficial, um, very very nasty. I mean you know, I'm not going to pretend that red staters don't have their own you know discrimination about you know certain you know assumptions about uh, left wing people and and you know is what it is. Um, it's, this is part of the polarization of of American politics and culture right now, um, but it, it's leading to a lot of very. You know, obviously, very shallow analysis, and that's why I enjoy. Uh, I remember a few years ago, you had an article uh, talking about you know, comparing the um, economic affluence of, of even you what know, well, we can acknowledge are relatively poor areas like Mississippi. Um, you know how how that compares to you know those those bastions of social democracy, Europe. And it's, it's interesting, you know, and, and part of that, right, is, is quality of life issues and the, the amount of housing that you have and things like this. Again, this does not mean that, you know, we, were, we have to overstate, um, you know, the, the economic health of, of your average resident in Mississippi, but necessarily to make our point. But I really appreciate the work that you do kind of breaking down and, and really highlighting how a lot of these assumptions that are so prevalent uh, in today's world really do not hold up to any sort of serious economic analysis.
1: Well, and yeah, if you really wanted to get down to the numbers, start looking at um, where are the pockets of poverty, right? And as I noted in the article, right, well, if you really wanted to reduce the poverty in Mississippi, uh, just get rid of western Mississippi. Uh, that's, That's the poor part of Mississippi. Get rid of southwestern Alabama. That's the poor part of Alabama. And So it's not like these are uniform sorts of situations where, oh, yeah, this state is just generally unproductive. As we noted, there are many suburban places in these cities that are very productive, uh, and they don't rely on federal funding. That's just all there is to it. I mean, and that's another reason Knight is just completely wrong. She doesn't even understand how basic state budgets work. I mean, you know how this works, though. I mean, the idea that cops and schools and even roads are overwhelmingly reliant on federal money is just completely untrue. Law enforcement and education especially, that's state funding, even local funding in a lot of cases. And so this (laughs) this idea that there'd be no infrastructure in these places is just absurdly wrong. But before we go much further, I just kind of want to look at some of the details here. And of course, you can see this by clicking on the article, uh, because I created charts for it and all of that stuff. But what are these states then, right, that the blue people are convinced are uh, just completely reliant on welfare? Well, it turns out there's really only a handful of them. Um, And that there's also, of course, blue states that are heavily reliant on uh, government funding as well. But among the red states, it's just as you would expect, Mississippi, West Virginia, and to a much lesser extent, Alabama and alaska but again you you look at the regional issues here and really west virginia is the only place that suffers from a whole lot of uh statewide depressed economic issues um whereas in other places uh, you can narrow it down to certain regions of the state where you've got significant uh poverty problems but then let's let's look once you get get outside those five so in those states so it's a situation where. Looking at this analysis, where we look at what are the people in that state paying in terms of federal taxes and then what comes back into the state in terms of federal grants, Social Security money, Medicare, uh, health care, other types of federal spending and defense spending as well. What you are finding is that, yeah, in those states where there's a large number of poor and there aren't any big cities, um, you, have, you end up with Mississippi and West Virginia, Um, But in some cases, you could even have very productive population, but federal spending is so huge that it skews the number. So what you got are places like Alabama, which is skewed by all that federal spending in the northern part of the state. But that doesn't mean people in the rest of the state are incapable of being productive economically. It just means that while they're paying uh, a certain amount of taxes, the feds have deemed it uh, their business to pour a bunch of federal money in there for a lot of defense stuff and space stuff and things like that. And it's a bit of a logical leap then to assume that all these people then would depend on federal money, that they're somehow unqualified or incapable of work. A lot of these people who have these federal jobs, they're actually, they're engineers, they're totally capable of doing highly productive private sector work. So you're making assumptions here that really have nothing to do with the reality. But then once you just get outside those numbers, then let's look at Indiana, which I know most people consider to be like this Hickville, backwoods sort of place, eh, they're about a dollar. So for every dollar they pay in, they get about a dollar back in federal spending. Uh, the Dakotas are around a dollar. Utah pays in more than they get back, and that's true of Kansas, Florida, Georgia, and Texas. In fact, the most populous red states, the ones that would really drive primarily, uh, say you had this red state block, if they were all merged together you would have plenty of states that pay in more than they get back and would then basically create a situation where the whole block came out to about a dollar for a dollar. So you're looking at the block as a whole, and it's not reliant on the blue states. They There's easily enough surplus within some of the richer states in the red block to subsidize some of the poorer states in the red block. Now, I'm not saying that's a great idea, and that's a— that's how their economy would be constructed or should be constructed. But it's just it just shows how wrong a lot of these blue assumptions are. Now, if you look at the blue states, you have something similar where New Mexico is right on the same level of West Virginia in terms of the, the, the fact that it gets a lot more money back in terms of what it pays in. The same also is true of Maine, which is primarily uh, rural Um, And then you get a situation like Hawaii, which also is a a net tax receiver state because Hawaii gets so much federal defense spending and that Hawaii is basically like this military outpost really for the United States. And uh, that's just a huge part of their economy. It doesn't mean there's not productive workers there. It just means they get a huge amount of federal spending that rolls in. So you can look at the chart and you can see that red or blue, if you've got a state that has... Some big cities in it, like Georgia, Florida, Texas, Ohio, all, and Utah, all red states, highly productive workers, don't need federal money at all. Same is even true of Nebraska, interestingly. And these are comparable, then, to states like California. California Texas are basically the same. Uh, Washington, Colorado, New York. These are all basically on a par. And so this, this idea, then, that, well... New York Colorado California these are the these are the rich productive states and, and Texas is just nothing uh it's just completely empirically incorrect and so it would just be nice if people would recognize some of the nuances here but what they do is then they think in their minds these leftists they think in their minds about Mississippi they think in Alabama they think of the 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 places that they hate right <laughs> because for them that tip of st- Typifies red state America. And then at the same time, too, let's look at places like Florida and Texas and Ohio. Is this just a matter of, oh, those urban centers, the urban core of Cleveland is so productive, and then the rest of the state? is uh just uh just wasteful uh, middle of nowhere sorts of people Well, obviously nonsense right huge lots of suburb populations in these places and a whole lot of them are the sorts of people who who vote red in fact it would be impossible for ohio to keep electing these republican senators and uh governors if they didn't have a whole lot of suburban republicans and so that's the reality these red states they all depend heavily on the suburban vote. And the suburban vote, a lot of the time, is going overwhelmingly in the red direction. So just on both levels, look at the numbers, and you can just see this idea that California is simply more productive than Texas, just not true. They're basically the same. And then some of these other just big states. So let's just, let's move beyond it. Let's get beyond this idea that uh, the red states are are on the precipice of being third world uh, countries, and you as you note, though, right? Just so much of it is, you know, my culture's better than their culture. And uh, so obviously, it's it's just a given that uh, they need us. But it's the colonialist mindset. Again, right? It was the British said exactly the same thing, right? When the Americans were talking about seceding. Oh, we provide you military defense. We give you all sorts of trade advantages. You'll never survive without us. And yet somehow the Americans managed to make a go of it. And of course, the blues are saying exactly the same thing about the red now. It's, uh, they're, they're no different from uh, right, uh, the, the old
0: British elites of old who thought the Americans needed them. Well, and just to kind of help illustrate the point you're making about the absurdity of the way some of these numbers work out in Alabama, I mean Huntsville, Alabama, which is northern Alabama, more PhDs per capita than I believe any community in the country. And so a lot of that money, again, it's going to NASA stuff. Again, not not that hard to imagine without these government programs there that you're looking at a very different situation. And that's another aspect of this entire conversation that I think also needs to be addressed, because I mean. When you think about some of these states, a lot of, you know, you have this very, you know, uniparty aspect of American politics where, you know, it's it's kind of these these very, you know, we, we call them moderate. I mean, they're they're reckless spending Republicans at the federal level who prioritize getting the pork back to their districts. And the problem is within doing that, you're actually eroding the state sovereignty in many ways of these states, that if you didn't have these programs available, this is obviously not necessarily apply it to rocket programs in Huntsville, Alabama, but other aspects, whether it is, you know, additional school funding. um, And and we've seen the way that the Biden administration is looking to weaponize uh, federal subsidies for lunch programs to push child uh, mutilation practices in those schools um, There's a very interesting report uh, several years ago from someone who at the time was working actually at the Alabama Policy Institute. She currently, I believe, is head counsel for the attorney general of Alabama. Her name was Catherine Green Robertson, who wrote about this dynamic of how you kind of just, the Republicans going along with these these federal subsidy programs to the states were actually selling out state sovereignty. And we saw this play a little bit with the, the Obama sort of gimmick using um, Obamacare funding, Medicaid expansion, expansion dollars. So I bet you if you look through that list of red states, um, you know, which red states are, are bigger federal money receivers than those that are not, states like Florida and states like Texas, they never accepted that Medicaid expansion dollars that were comp- part of that Obama That that was their hook. That was their bribe to try to get states to jump on board that that increase the federal level on on those programs. And in doing so, because that that entire offer was like, oh, well, in the short term, the federal government covers 100 percent of that expansion. But then over time, right, you know, that that baby elephant problem emerges and all of a sudden you're 10 years later and the Medicare expansion funding has now makes up a large percentage of what your state tax dollars are having to go to in spite of those additional kickbacks that you get from the federal level. And so the way it's it's interesting, too, I think when you think about these states like Mississippi, um, like uh, I I don't have one of your sexy charts in front of me right now, but I'm betting Louisiana is probably uh, receiving more tax dollars than it pays in. There's an interesting legacy, I think, as well, of that old school populist. Right. The the, the populist Democrats of the 60s and 70s, the George Wallace's, if you will, who were – Culturally conservative in a variety of ways, which you know, controversial over time, be it what it what it is, that you had a lot of those, you know, blue dog Democrats become Republicans. You had Richard Shelby, right, senator from Alabama, up until last election cycle, he was a Democrat, became a Republican. Um, you have this throughout the South, where you have a lot of these old school populist Democrat style things. Georgia is an interesting exception within this. Uh, Lester Maddox, who was kind of there version of, of George Wallace was was always a little bit more of a free market guy um, in spite of sharing some other sort of similarities with, with some of the other Southern politicians at the time. Um, Florida, you never had really had quite the same mix because you don't have quite the same sort of, of roots there. You have a lot of kind of, you know, a lot, always had a lot of, of populist uh, population change over there. So you never had quite the, the ability to build up the sort of old school political boss systems like Huey Long in Louisiana, right? But you have actually, I think, a, 21st, a 20th century um, sort of generational aspect within some of these re- current Republican states that have you know th- this this ability to be culturally conservative but addicted to federal spending, has actually created a dynamic where these power brokers, these these types of Republican politicians, which your average Republican, you know, nominally doesn't like, right? They have actually had incredible amounts of political power due to their ability to wield these, these, these federal gimmies. And it's like if you imagine a counterexample where you, these these are, uh, funds were not available to, to utilize for vote buying in many of these parts of the area, then some of these states would would probably look very different as well. And so, I think there is an unseen aspect, you know, from this dynamic as well, where it is the addiction to federal spending is actually propping up a lot of bad state government policies. Whereas in Florida, you know, Florida should be a, a larger spending environment than, than a lot of others for the same reason that COVID or that, that Florida should have been the graveyard of COVID because of the elderly population, right? Like it, it should have hit Florida more. It didn't. And, and it's because, you know, there's, there has been a, a very long tradition, even, even Jeb Bush, was physically conservative um, as governor of Florida, um, and and I, I think those sort of legacy aspects of this addiction to federal money is is, is another aspect of this. And I mean, I'm not expecting Democrats to you know, to you know, point this out, but I think it's something worth considering. When we have this conversation.
1: You know, it's interesting you bring that up because yeah, the the legacy of the New Deal has not been erased uh, in the old South. Go back and look at. Um, The 1936 state-by-state returns from the Deep South, and you will find FDR winning 80, 90 percent of the vote in those states. The, The socially conservative rural Democrats, which was most people in those states back then, just overwhelmingly loved FDR. They loved the New Deal. They loved the free money. That was coming in, and that sort of that's those sorts of attitudes don't just disappear overnight. And so it's it's actually become a demographic change in terms of the suburbanization of the region that's really uh, changed. I think those attitudes, and also I think the fact that the the Dems abandoned the social conservatism that uh, they used to have in order to keep rural people on their side. And so there's definitely a legacy. Of that, there. And I think you can still see that in some of the more rural areas. But again, those people are are a waning part of the population. And uh, you just don't need people to work the fields like you used to. And that's just less and less of a part of uh, the local complex every year. But there is, of course, right, this sort of federal bribery scheme that just perpetuates itself very much so because uh, politicians are expected to bring home the bacon. Uh, and Remember, Ron Paul was criticized for wanting to make his own, the, the taxpayers in his district, reap some of the rewards of the federal money they were paying in. And he was criticized then for supporting earmarks. Uh, which is just this nonsensical, idiotic uh, claim that that Ron Paul was some sort of big spending government guy. The reality, of course, is that he recognized the feds took all this money and that he was trying to get some of it back for his constituents uh, to their localized economy. But most people don't really benefit at all uh, when they're suburban taxpayers because they're just paying more in than they're getting back. Uh, And then another factor there is not only just federal spending, but also the monetary policy complex. And then when we look at that, we see that it is the parts of the country that have the largest aspects of the financialized economy that benefit the most from that. So when you look at uh, the people who are involved then in uh, investment banking, you look at uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, uh, all of those, all the people and workers involved in those fields, the money counters, that they're going to have very much outsized incomes and also a lot of income growth because expansive monetary policy benefits those people more than it benefits people debt lower down the income scale. So that then further skews the wealth in those regions, and that tends to favor the northeastern United States and the west Coast. So. In an actually somewhat free economy or a country with sane monetary policy, you wouldn't have those same sorts of imbalances. So there's so many issues you have to look at here, but nothing could be more wrong than this fake urban-rural conflict that is way more overplayed than is the reality, and then this idea that there's these uniform groups in the blue states and the red states and and that Texans don't like, actually have productive jobs and such. It's just another component of the culture war that manifests itself in terms of how the money is distributed by the regime. And it's uh, lo and behold, it turns out that the regime taking money and then spreading it out for political purposes leads to actually conflict among groups rather than harmony. But uh, we, of course, have been making uh, that, uh, that point for years
0: yeah I don't know if it's you' know, just being here in, in Auburn today uh, you know on this Alabama clay, but uh, one could also point out that if we're talking about the the uh, uh, historic sort of uh, uh, repression of the Southern economy, I mean, go back to the transcontinental Railroad. Right. Which was massive. federal subsidies for infrastructure projects that you know avoided the South as a consequence of Reconstruction era policies oh. and the Civil War, and things like that. Right. So the, 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 there's a long, long history. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the financial aspect of it. I was, was going to be my next lead in there is that we have an entire federal system that currently is structured for the explicit purpose of extracting wealth out of the productive areas of non-politically privileged areas and giving it to a, a protected class, you know, giving it to Wall Street, giving it to Silicon Valley. A- and it's interesting because um, I think right now, like, one of the, the dynamics going on is that a lot of these, I mean, you see right now in, in financial services industries, right, where, where, again, as a result of the last few years and a variety of things there, crime, I think, is increasingly playing an aspect of this too, is that you're having you know financial services companies relocate to uh, Florida, relocate to Texas, um, and it'll be interesting to see. I know with, with, for example, the Texas model, which relies a lot more upon I think direct subsidies um, and and more explicit tax credit programs. Um, to attract large corporate businesses. Um, I know one of the, the consequences talked about is that the workforce there, you know, it's, it's people from California moving in here. This kind of goes to the broader conversation about Californians kind of spreading their, their politics um, and not leaving it behind in, in certain different, you know, Arizona I know has this issue. Um, I've heard horror stories about Boise, Idaho for, for similar reasons, right? Um, but I know there's concerns about the Texas approach on trying to attract some of these large businesses in the name of job growth and et cetera. Um, whereas f- Florida, you have the, again, you know, a lot of it's been, been COVID, a lot of it's been been political related. And yet you have within that state trying to take a heavy hand on trying to force some of these large corporations to give up policies they might not want to give up, I know there's aspects right now and trying to, you know, threaten threatening to, to remove bank accounts from, um, my under, my understanding is entire financial institutions doing SEG style, um, you know, th- their investment portfolios. Um, the first time around, it was actually kind of just limited to, you know, divesting state funds from specific portfolios that are SEG, SEG focused. My understanding is that they're looking to expand that. Um, I know there's concerns there about uh, trying to create rules on... Banking institutions that discriminate on various things that Ron DeSantis doesn't like. Um, I'm interested to see though is if that ends up being a sustainable model. If that ends up being watered down, um, what what does come to mind though, and I think this is one of the act one of the the remnants and one of the continuing legacies of progressive politics. Um, I, I know uh, Sam Francis back in the day in one of his articles about kind of the Middle American uh, radicals. Um, he talked about how a lot of the power the left had enjoyed became or came about as a direct consequence of the, the rise in uh, wealth and power of the financial class and of these certain sectors that were politically aligned with the democratic party. Um, at the time, this was, I believe in the mid eighties or late eighties. Um, this was again, Reagan era gold. The, the IED, he, he was writing about, well, maybe there's a possibility that the sunbelt Belt. Um, would receive similar sort of patronage from the federal level in the form of military-industrial complex, right, that, that might be more conservative than Wall Street bankers over time. That has certainly not worked out. Um, I am interested, though, to see in, in the long run, you know, what does it look like for industries to emerge that reject the ideologies of large corporate America, of, you know, the Davos crowd, of, you know, all these, you know, these stereotypical, you know, Bill Gates, you know, Klaus Schwab sort of types, and and w- within an economy as with as much intervention as exists from the financial level, both the physical level, the regulatory level, the tax level, um, it will be interesting to see as there is a lot. You know, given the sort of of rising angst, um, given all of the the stresses within the economy, you know, where are those pockets of the future? that might be able to kind of develop a, a economic class that is interested in reining back and, and pushing back the progressive Because once upon a time, again, you know, back in when when Mises and Hayek were coming to the United States from from Europe, you know, after World War II, right, you know, Mises was benefiting from the Association of of Manufacturers. Um, You know, it it was GM that was republishing uh, Road to Serfdom in simplified form, right? You know, there was kind of an understanding that, you know, large businesses did not want FDR-style policies. And the way to push back on FDR-style policies was to promoting alternative economic advocates um, that rejected those politics, and so I'm, I'm interested. I know, I know there, there's some hope there. I think this is why so many people, you know, have so much of a, an emotional, I think, attachment to Bitcoin and and crypto is because it's seen as an industry that if it rises would have more sort of libertarian sort of tendencies there, and you know, if you have more Bitcoin you know, millionaires and billionaires, and that can kind of create a political elite that can finance, you know, if, if we had you know, sixteen Peter Thiel's um, you, know, you know, maybe you're able to outflank George Soros out there kind of on the grand political chessboard of the world. Um, and I'm interested to see how that going forward, you know, what what does this this moment of extreme political migration, how might that shake up and, and, and how might these states look, look at from this kind of federal subsidized look going forward? I mean, 10 years from now, um, you know, it, it, could, it could be you know, a very changed uh, economic map out there.
1: Yeah, I think we are in a period of uh, changing demographics in terms of who's within each coalition on each side. And it is absolutely true that uh, the Dems have been losing more and more rural votes uh, throughout the U.S., uh, probably largely due to the culture war aspect, because, of course, there's no real threat to farm subsidies or anything like that. Uh, Those things aren't going away anytime soon. Uh, but the, they've also done a masterful job at co-opting about half of the suburban population, right? So it used to be, uh, if you look at the numbers from 20 years ago, people who had higher levels of education, they were higher earners, and they tended to vote uh, Republican then. Uh, but that's certainly not the case now. Now, uh, the farther you go through higher ed, the more likely you are to be a leftist. And so it, it's been just an excellent plan that the left has managed to execute in terms of taking uh, your people who spend the most time in school that then end up uh, earning some of the highest incomes, uh, that that's, that's basically picked off half the suburban population then and really balanced out whatever was lost in terms of the rural population. And how will that work itself out Uh, I don't know, but you you look at the fact that so much—you mentioned, right, who's this new class of independent thinkers, this new class of entrepreneurs that are going to be free of the state? And it's been that way really for 500 years, right? When you look back at the burgeoning bourgeois population that was arising in Europe, these were city folk, they were the new merchant class, they uh, were the people who were separate— from the old rural aristocracy and also separate from the King's bureaucracy. They were their own thing and they started to form as their own separate group because they were against the existing power structures and the fact that the state essentially controlled the elites in both the agricultural sectors and uh, among the friends of the regime, the civil service, whoever you wanted to call them back then, the nobility. And, So they were always like trying to escape uh, the tax structure by building their own settlements outside of the the taxed regions. And there were all these measures then to create their own bourgeois sensibilities, their own own movement. And that turned into what we consider to be classical liberalism, bourgeois liberalism today. It was a separate movement that had to really assert itself from outside the state-controlled avenues of culture and education. uh, And it was its own new thing. And so I think you need that. You need a group of people who are productive in their own way, but who are locked out of power uh, because they're wrong ideologically, quote unquote, wrong. And then they have to build up their own parallel structures, their own power bases. And uh, the, the left had been so good at turning the financial class, the government class, the uh, the people with the graduate degrees into their loyal subjects, uh, that it, it creates this uh, this need for a, a separate group. And so without that, then, you can't expect any sort of successful movement to arise. And so, yeah, you do need that. You need people who are willing to look at something outside what's expected of you in terms of federal largesse and federal planning and federal education and all that. Because, yeah, they're buying off the state governments. They're buying off... Uh, the quote-unquote elites, that is, the people with the the good degrees, the people with the high-paying jobs. Um, they've clearly already bought off Silicon Valley, which we once ridiculously used to think was going to be this new group of anarchists at Google or something like that. That certainly didn't happen. The government co-opted all of that. They paid all of the brightest people a whole lot of money and magically got them to go over to the regime's side. So... Uh, yeah, the, the, if you continue that way, well, then clearly uh, any any independent thinkers are going to continue to lose ground in the suburbs, and you are going to only be left with the rural population, and that's just nothing. That's uh, going to be some tiny minority. So um, it's clearly some other movement has to be built up that's
0: outside the usual power structures. Yeah, I think it's Dietrich McCloskey that talked about the bourgeois deal being, you know, you leave us alone and we'll make you rich. And I, as you mentioned, it seems like the the traditional Republican gambit of you know you elect Republicans, we'll cut your taxes, and that that seems to work. After the midterms, it doesn't seem to work anymore, right? Um, you know, a lot of people drove past you know gas stations with five dollar gasoline and, and still went out voted because of other issues that concern them more than material well being. You know, may, maybe the, the future hope of getting some of these these large financial benefactors, these these captains of industry, is you know you you vote for me. And, uh, you know, we won't be pushing, you know, we won't be trying to mutilate your child and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep the crap off the streets. And we'll, we'll see if that might be a, a effective enough deal in the future to perhaps alter some of these things because it seems increasingly like the, the pure monetary aspects of it just aren't there. Um, with that being said though, Ryan, I, I think that is all the time that we have today. Um, gonna love this topic. Uh, please uh, send Ryan or I a, uh, an email if you have any topics that you'd like to see discussed or shoot us a message there on Twitter. Um, As always, thank you for listening to Radio Rothbard and hope to see you next time.